Hey, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. Today, my guest is Javier Quiles. Uh, Javier uh, wrote a paper titled Parallel Sequencing Lives, or What Makes Large Sequencing Projects Successful. Javier, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Roma, for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, could you tell us about your background? Yeah, my background, I did my bachelor's degree in biotechnology, so I have a biological background. Uh, then as soon as I started my PhD, I start, uh, so I, I was facing like the need to analyze a lot, uh, a high volume of data. So I, I started getting into bioinformatics. Uh, so by the end of my PhD, I was quite comfortable working in bioinformatics. So I, I went for more bioinformatics training during my, my postdoctoral uh, uh, fellowships. And currently I'm working as a bioinformatician at the, at the CRG. Mm -hmm. So a bioinformatician, what does that position entail? This is not a postdoc, right? It's not, it's not a postdoc. I think in terms of, uh, of the roles that you do are like very similar in, 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 the, in the technical sense. So you essentially analyze data. But uh, from my experience, the difference is that while I was a PhD or a postdoc, normally you would have your one or two main projects, and then you could still do run some other collaborations, but you would have your own project that you would uh, be in charge of, uh, like thinking about the experiments or the analysis that you had to do, and you had to move forward the project, perform the analysis, and then eventually writing it as a paper or like communicating into the community. Well, I think that as a informatician, at least in my case, it's uh, different in the sense that I provide support to other members of my team. So they, they, it's, it's them who run the, the projects. So, so they will come to me for, let's say, two tasks. The first one would be the pre-processing of the data from the sequencer to having some features or process data. And the second task would be taking this process data, try to perform a specific analysis into the, in, in turn with the aim to uh, uh, answer specific questions. So it's more, not so much a, a difference in terms of the analysis skills that you need. It's more in your role within a team or an institution. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And this is how I, this is what I actually understand when, when I hear the term bioinformatician, but... Um... I think it's also used for many other roles as well. Was that a conscious decision on your part? Was it a moment where you were deciding whether to become a scientist with his own research program or uh, to pursue this support role? Or is this something you already committed to or do you consider this as a transient part in your career? No, it's more the first. So after... Finishing my PhD, I like I followed the canonical path. I did a one-year postdoc in Barcelona, and then uh, something which is very common in academia, especially like living in Europe, is go to the U.S. for a postdoc. But in this in these two postdocs, I started realizing that what I really enjoyed was performing the analysis, but I was not so attracted by the fact of being a PI, uh, mainly because I saw that. Uh, PIs involved much of the times in like managing a, managing a team, which is what this was okay for me, but also a lot of time uh, writing runs and, and trying to get money for, for, for funding 
the research and this is something that I was not so interested in. So I realized that on the other side that we, there were bioinformaticians in my team which were doing essentially the same as I was doing. But first, they, they had this different role that they didn't have to uh, push forward their own projects, but they could focus on many more projects and, and dealing more with the, with the analysis part. And I also I saw that the the conditions of terms of salary were were better for a informatician as compared to a postdoc. So these were my two motivations for like start working looking for a position as a informatician. Yeah, that resonates a lot with me. But on the other hand, a lot of young people when they graduate from a university or a PhD program, they consider being API as their goal. This is the only career path they see or they consider. And I think there is a stigma against, or rather a perception that if you are not API, you are limited in your career, in your salary, in how like other people uh, treat you, right? So PIs usually get more respect. I think, is this something you experience? How, how do you look at these things? Uh, I mean, I totally agree with you that there's this perception that uh, being a PI is like a, a goal, no? that that should be the goal in academia. And I think that this is valid because we we still have the perception of a, of a scenario which is uh, old-fashioned. No? I guess that maybe one or two generations ago, uh, there were many positions, so becoming a PI not only was something very prestigious and, and very interesting, but also it was a very likely reality for many people. I think this has totally changed. I mean, there's data supporting that now we are generating an excess of, of people with a PhD and also with a postdoc, and there are not enough faculty positions for so many postdocs or PhDs. So strategically, this also was uh, something that I observed and also was a motivation for me not to follow the, the path of trying to be a PI. But more importantly for me, it was that, it's what I said, I didn't want to be a PI. So I wouldn't have mind being a PI in the sense of managing a team uh, because I think it has advantages like that you can pursue your interests with a team, not only on your own, but it also that I, I had the, the feeling that by working as an informatician, I would be uh, able to focus on the analysis of the data and dedicate, let's say, 90% of my time to, to, being, to, to being an analyst. While if I had tried to be a PI, I would have been running into this path of uh, getting data, getting fun uh, sorry, getting data, getting funding, recruiting people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I also agree with you that some people might think uh, that uh, not being a PI and on the other side, like being an informatician is something considered as a lower uh, quality. Uh, if somebody look at me in, in this sense, well, I, I, I never experienced somebody thinking that I was uh, of lower quality or lower uh, uh, prestige just for not being a PI. But in general, if I had had this feeling, I, I wouldn't have cared because this is what I wanted to do. And on the other side, uh, one good thing for informaticians is that it's something it's becoming something very sexy, so to speak. So I, I quite on the contrary, no, I normally had the feeling that when you tell people, no, I, I didn't want to be a postdoc anymore or be a PI, I want to do, I want to be an informatician. This is considered as a as a good choice because it's. Uh, 
like good conditions, uh, more stable in terms of not having to look for your grants uh, and, and good work. So at the moment, do you have a team or are you part of a team or do you work by yourself? I'm part of a team. So I was recruited for the CRG. Uh, they got a grant for a big project in which they would, uh, the main goal was studying the, the, the 4D structure of the genome and how it changes over, over time. And this grant was awarded to four teams at the CRG that they had to collaborate. And in order to collaborate and to generate the data and, and process it, they created a, a unit. And this central unit, uh, it's, it's responsible also of performing experiments and generating the, the, the framework for, for analyzing the data. And it, it involves uh, two wet lab people and two bioinformaticians. So I'm one of these bioinformaticians. So I, uh, so in, in the core layer, if you want, I work with these three other people, one of them a bioinformatician. But then in the periphery, uh, there are these four groups, each having a mixed composition of wet lab people and, and computational people. So I also interact with them. So it's a it's a broad team of of more or less twenty to thirty people that I interact with. Of course, there are closer interactions with some members, but this is sort of the picture uh, of of the team I'm working right now. And so your paper, parallel sequencing lives, it is sort of a small handbook about how to do and how not to do the job of, of a bioinformatician. I'm wondering what made you uh, write that. Was it a, a specific event when you decided, like, I, I have to, to write this down, maybe for, for someone uh, to, to read, or what was the motivation? Well, chronologically, what happened is that I joined the project about three years ago, and so I, I landed in a new position and I realized that there were things. So the situation was this. We were starting this project. We were about to sequence uh, many samples, getting many samples, processing a lot of data. So we were just starting to think how to process data. But I thought that what the initial plans were, were, were not enough. So all these things that we, that we comment on about uh, the processes were not automated, so they were not scaling well with the number of samples. Metadata were not collected, so it was very common that maybe you would have one sample and we wouldn't know what was the species of that sample, for instance. So you would need to run to somebody else and ask, hey, what's this information? Give it to me. And I realized that this was very inefficient. So it was all this... Uh, experience that I grasped during my first month there that it was really the motivation or, 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 or the need to learn all these things about uh, data management, automating, collecting, defining how we collect metadata systematically, that this was a process about one year or so. So we learned a lot about essentially these things, documentation, automation, trustability, and autonomy for the, for the experimentalist. So, and then it happened that uh, every now and then we have to present in the department. We call it the data club. So I had to, I was given a, a slot, so I had to present. So I said, I have a problem because, uh, well, I, I, I do work, so I, I, I can prove that I, uh, my role here is relevant. But more or less the topics of these, these seminars tend to be more on the results, on the biology. So, well, I decided, okay, I'm going to present what I've been doing in terms of 
the perils of analyzing high throughput sequencing data and how we had achieved an efficient management of this data. So to my surprise, like uh, especially the PIs of, of the project were like very interested and they say, okay, you have to you have to publish this in some way. And it was also beneficial for the project because it's a track record of, of the achievements that we have achieved uh, as, a, as, a, as a project or as a, as a, as a team. No? I say, okay, so I didn't know how I would publish it because it was like, it was very heterodox in the sense of normally you think about uh, articles are having an introduction, an introduction, some results, and then some conclusion. Conclusion, sorry, but here it was something different. It was like trying to explain uh, best practices. But but yeah, I mean to sum up, in general, the motivation really was uh, the fact that we learned a lot during the first years of the project, and then the the, the really the tipping point to writing it was this this uh, excitement from the PIs that uh, cheered me up to, to write the paper. So in the paper, you tell this parable of two uh, labs, and uh, this is what uh, the title, Parallel Sequencing Lives, references. Do you want to briefly retell the parable to our listeners? Yeah, so essentially, the bottom story of the article is describing bad practices in analyzing uh, high-throughput sequencing data, essentially high-throughput data, and how we think that it should be to overcome these issues. So this thing, if you keep in mind these bad practices with these good practices, we try to materialize these two sides on the lives of, of two sequencing samples. So essentially the, the story starts with two sequencing samples that need to be processed and how by uh, doing it in a very unorganized uh, way uh, you run into many problems while on the other side there's a one lab in which they have established a good system for for analyzing the data in an efficient way so that uh, all the analysis are smooth and, and, and the lives of well the researchers are much fruitful. In discussing this good and bad methods, uh, do you think it's useful to to draw a line between the um, practices for the wet lab and the practices for the dry lab, right? So, for example, metadata management is probably something that the wet lab should be doing, but all the rest seems to be uh, referring to the dry lab, or uh, did I miss something? So, actually, I think what, what one thing that we, we realize is that Part of this uh, bad management or bad uh, bad practices result from the disconnection between the wet lab and the the dry lab part. So uh, nowadays, sequencing uh, data is present in many historically wet lab uh, wet lab teams. So I think that many wet lab people are like generating a lot of data, and they hire some bioinformaticians to analyze data. But there's no really communication be between the two parts. So what, one thing that's very important is that, on the contrary, that these things are not separated. This good, ma this good management and good analysis practices are not separated. So, for instance, it's true that uh, when we refer about automating the analysis so that it scales well, so that you uh, integrate metadata with analysis. I agree that this part would be more specific of the bioinformaticians or of the computational biologists, 
but especially the part of uh, the metadata, it's very important that the, the more analyst people speak to the to the web lab people. For instance, in our case, even even if we the, the, the computational team implemented these systems to collect the metadata, the fact that the web people, the web lab people told us which fields it would be that would be critical for analyzing the data was key in order to, to establish this system. So I think there was a lot of communication between them and us in this sense. Uh, another example is uh, what when we talk about the interactive web applications. So this is another example in which uh, the lack of communication between two parties, it's really a killer for, for good science. Because nowadays we are generating a lot of data. So if you go to the, your, the researcher and say, okay, here you have your bunch of files, so maybe that person is not even able to access to the cluster where all these data are, or even if they are, these files are huge, so he or she will try to open them, uh, and this is not feasible because we need right tools to manipulate these files. And even if they learn how to use common tools to manipulate files, <clears throat> even if you try to, let's say, filter uh, your list of, of, of expressed genes for a specific region in the uh, region in the genome, imagine that you have to do this for 10, 20, hundreds of samples. So there is this lack of of skills for that web lab people in order to do so. So doing these interactive web applications is a very efficient tool for them to look at the data. But again, only if you if you are the informatician and you say okay, I'm going to do a, a web application tool for the web lab people. You need to talk to them in order to define, okay, what kind of plot you would want to look at? What is the data that you are more interested in? What's the, you, and even when, when you define this, you need feedback so that say, okay, I don't like this color scheme. You need to change it. I would like to see things in another way. So I, I wouldn't separate between things that are the responsibility of web lab people as opposed to responsibilities that are private of all bioinformaticians. Okay, so I want to go through the recommendations, the specific uh, pieces of advice you give in the paper and talk about them one by one. So you already started talking about the interactive web applications. So can you tell the listeners what, what you write about them in the paper? What, what's your advice? Is? So our advice is, so the first is accepting that it's very likely that you need one. In, the, in cases like this, when you are generating a lot of data and just dumping uh, dozens or hundreds of directories to your uh, to your users or the web lab people, it's not going to be effective. They are going to maybe not be uh, have access to the data, and they will not be able to look at it. What do these web applications do? So more more generally, these web applications are I think that many of our listeners are familiar with uh, dashboards in which essentially dashboards are like connecting uh, an engine, a computer engine with a database and displaying some data. Like imagine that you are a runner and you keep track of the miles that you run, the time, the, your heart rate, and then this, this data is collected and stored somewhere else, but you don't dig into it just manually. It, it, you, we have these dashboards in which you see summaries per week, uh, maximum and minimum hair rate, so all these kinds of things. So this is how it looked like uh, in our case. So we have <clears throat> the metadata that we combine with uh, the process sequencing data. 
So the user will go to a website, a specific website, and will see a place where he or she can select two samples and look at the metadata, for instance, given a, uh, one sample ID, they can look at the metrics of the quality of, of the raw reads, and also they can look at when that sample was processed, by whom it was processed, also the, the levels of uh, mapping quality, etc. And also they can look to more relevant things like, uh, for instance, if gen, gene A and gene B are interacting, or or if uh, a given the, the level of expression of a given gene, and these are things that are becoming. It's not we are not pioneers in this sense. Uh, this is something that very common, in which more and more tools come with packages that allow you to visualize this information. And one thing that I would recommend about uh, like uh, deploying these sort of web applications is that. And here again, I want to highlight the importance of communicating with the web lab people is that one very or one trap that can happen is that maybe the, the, the person developing this web application try to do something which is very fancy, which covers many aspects, and this is time consuming. So I think it's very important that when saying, okay, we're gonna write this web application, it's very important to communicate with the web lab people saying, okay, exactly what do you need the web application to display? Because all things that uh, that you write the code to display and are not used, this is, is not efficient. So these web applications, are they specific to like different research questions? Is there something, some kind of standard software any lab can install? Or do these have to be written for each particular purpose, for each uh, research uh, question? So I think I would say both. Uh, so I think it's more and more common that if a specific lab runs a software for the analysis of data A, so they would also like um, publish it together with a tool that allows displaying this data because they are aware of the issues I just mentioned. On the other side, many of these tools are just built on, on existing uh, programming tools. So that, for instance, the one that we use to internally is R. So R includes a package called Shiny, which allows you to easily deploy all these tools. So I would say that <clears throat> both. No? So you have like close options that you can install in your, or maybe access online, and you can visualize uh, tailored uh, types of data. But on the other side, you also have the tools to write these applications for your internal analysis or for eventually publication to the community. How much does this apply to smaller labs that don't have uh, like a dedicated bioinformatician position, but where people who do the, um, you know, the sample preparation, those are the same people who do data analysis. Is this uh, something they need to worry about as well? Or uh, if it's the same person who does everything, there is no communication problem within the same person. So, does this still apply? Yeah, I mean, for the web application, obviously you need someone who's skilled in, in writing code. You know? So that's, I guess, tip number one. So if, or, or rule number one. So if you have a team with no informatician, then OBB informaticians is great, or somebody who's skilled enough in, in writing code, then it's, of course, you are not going to be able to deploy these web applications because they are not 
that user-friendly so that you can do it without this knowledge. And of course, even if you have a informatician or two, if they are overloaded with uh, many other analyses, they will probably have little time to, to do so. So, but on the other side, it's also true that many of these good applications uh, have, you, you need quite a lot of time in the beginning, so you need an investment in, in, in deploying them, but once they, they are established, unless you want to improve them, there's not much maintenance time. So, in other words, if you are a small lab with just one informatician and, there's, and you detect some aspect or some sort of information that you would really benefit by, uh, by deploying one of these web tools, I would recommend that maybe that person right, spends, let's say, one month learning how to... So that person will probably will be familiar with R, which is a standard um, programming language for the analysis of data. So maybe the, that person can spend one month in, in learning Shiny and, and write that web application, one, two months. And after that, he, he doesn't need to invest that much time in, in that tool. Yeah, uh, so th this is one aspect, obviously, that uh, a small lab can, may not have the resources to build a web application, but I was also thinking that in a small lab, Every person, if there is no dedicated bioinformatician, every person is a bit of, of a bioinformatician. Like every person typically can analyze their own data. And so in this situation, uh, I'm, I'm wondering if the payoff of the web application is is lesser exactly because... So you, you say a web application is needed so people can look at their data, but if people can use like the standard tools like the command line tools or R to look at the data, then maybe there is not much of a win from a web application. No, I, I, I totally agree. So in our case, uh, the need for web application is because there's a habit component of, of well -up people who will not have the skills to look at the data uh, with the command line tools. So in, in this case, if, in our case, it was very needed. But I totally agree with you. So for instance, I, I contributed to to building up this web application, but I'm not using it myself because if I need to, let's say, filter some sort of data by chromosome or combining data for several samples, I can do it uh, on the command line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So are you considering releasing some of the web application you've built uh, as open source projects so that other could take advantage of them? The, the code is is, post, is posted in, in GitHub, so it, it's free for everybody, but we don't market it, uh, we don't market it as, a, as a product that you can download and start running. It's, uh, the, the, the objective of writing this web application was essentially internally, so we have not really considered releasing it as a, as a product for other researchers. It's interesting that I can build a case uh, using the arguments similar to what you write in the paper, or at least what I maybe attributed to you uh, and to your paper. So I think in the paper you argue for um, sort of more systematic approach to to handling data. So we can imagine two different scientists or bioinformaticians and... Uh, one of them just does these um, throwaway analyses, right? And uh, his files are, uh, you know, scattered around in some sort of chaos. And uh, 
uh, he he names his samples inconsistently and so on. And uh, there is another way to approach this is to do this as if you'll have to hand this to another person or you'll have to look at this in two years when you don't remember anything, right? And when you approach this from, from this perspective, so I'm I'm not the only person who will be using this and it's not just today, then you sort of put more effort into documenting everything, organizing everything, cleaning everything up. Uh, and I think that's what you argue in the paper. And and I totally agree with that. And I observed that in my own life uh, many times that uh, when it's something I'm going to to publish or hand to other people, I definitely put more effort into cleaning it up. And then later, I myself can benefit from this. But the same logic actually applies to the code itself. So if you approach the code as something you're going to release as as a product and provide support to other people, you normally invest more effort into documenting it and, uh, you know, making sure it installs cleanly. And then you yourself benefit from from that in the long run. Because, so let's say you you write a web application and you deploy it and it runs and it serves you for two years. But in two years, your server dies and you have to redeploy it. And if this was a product, it would have like a clear installation instructions and, you know, um, everything would be very simple and you'd be essentially the user of your own product who benefits from good uh, support of the product. Whereas if this is something you just uh, threw together, you'll have to dig into the sources and figure out, oh, like how did I configure it the last time uh, I built it? Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree. So what I would say in, in our favor is that I think it's, it's a matter of frame, no? So in our case, the, the, the time frame for making uh, standards in terms of um, storing the data and, and these applications was the frame of the project. So we said, okay, for the next four or five years, we're going to be working in this project. It's going to be involving these four teams. So this is a possible solution for managing the data and the analysis efficiently. So that's what was our time frame. And that's why building the web applications so that they persist beyond the end of this project uh, was not one of of, of priorities. And uh, another recommendation apart from web applications that you give in the paper is about metadata collection. So what what is the process that you recommend? The process is that, uh, that I would recommend is that very early in the project or when establishing a, a lab or, or, or if you decide to establish it later on, but you need a period of saying, Look at the kinds of data that you are receiving and deciding what kind of metadata for our listeners by metadata, I understand data describing your data. So for instance, in the case of sequencing, your data would be the reads, but of course having the reads by themselves is not enough. So you, you normally use, need other information, like for instance, if it's paired and or single end, the species so that you know which genome reference you need to use. The read length comes very handy as well. So all this kind of information we refer to as metadata. So I think it's that 
it's good that you sit down in your team and you say, okay, we have this kind of data, which metadata it's relevant not only biologically, so that, for instance, if a sample is treated or not, it's a controlled or or a, or a affected individual, but also information like logistic information, like for instance, when a given sample was processed, where it was processed, so that you can detect batch effects or or problems with the sequencing facility, etc. So you define all this information. Again, here it, it's a balance between having enough information and a balance between having too much information. I mean, I guess probably there's never like too much information, but of course, I think that co collecting the metadata should be a matter of something between five, 10 minutes for the experimentalist. So if that person needs to spend like two hours per sample, this is this is not worthless, but I would say that it, you will face more resistance by people to do so. And maybe all this information that you collect in the two hours per sample will almost never be used. No, so you need to sit down, define uh, an optimal set of fields that you are pretty sure you will be using in the future, and then and then define a system that how you are going to be collecting. So in our in our in our case, what we found it worked for us was uh, Google Forms. It's a very easy way by which you define a form. And it's very flexible in terms of defining uh, which fields you need to collect data for, so that anybody can just go fill in this form, so that and data will be immediately transferred to a, a Google spreadsheet. So these spreadsheets are are very useful to to have like a catalog of the samples that we have. So normally people in the lab, let's say that they need a sample treat with product X for this many minutes. So they go there, they can just filter the data and see, okay, perfect, I have these five samples that I can use in my analysis. So this is, so now, so we have the what, which is defining the data that you need, the how, which is uh, like how you can do it, uh, Google Drive or Google uh, Forms and, and spreadsheets work fine for us. Uh, obviously, some people rose the concern of like that it's a third-party product. So especially if you have sensitive data like patients' data, you would you may want to go for other options that are more private in terms of of holding the information. But this is more or less the picture of how how I do it. Oh, one thing I I I, rep I would recommend definitely is try to limit uh, free text as much as possible. So the way that we design our forms is that. To include uh, drop-down menus as, as much as possible. The reason for that is it's uh, probably obvious is that uh, you limit uh, typos or different ways of writing information. For instance, the species. If you had a field in your form saying for the user to write the species, probably would see people uh, capitalizing letters. Some other no. Some people would literally write Homo sapiens, while other people would write human. Some other people may write H dot sapiens, and this would be a problem when trying to access to the data programmatically. So on the, on the other side, if you define the form so that there will be a drop-down menu in which you can pick for uh, human or mouse, then you solve this problem. And we this same reasoning applies to many other fields like uh, sequencing facility, uh, the date of sequencing, the person who performed the analysis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, I think that's a, a very important point, limiting uh, free text as much as possible, especially in fields 
that you think will be relevant in order to access to the data programmatically. On the other side, you can leave some uh, feeds like notes where the, the, the researchers can, can write whatever they want. Yeah, I think uh, this is a great idea uh, precisely because uh, it gives you a way to avoid free uh, text entry. So compared to things like paper notebooks or electronic notebooks or Excel spreadsheets, right? Here you have a central place where you can uh, decide what the values for each dropdown are. And also another benefit is that all the data come to one place instead of like having to approach each lab member and collect their own share of of data, right? Yes, that, that's, that's another important aspect that then in this way, data is centralized. Yeah, uh, and uh, another interesting uh, suggestion you make uh, concerns naming your samples. So what are the right and wrong names to name your samples? So the wrong is everything that is not systematic. So, and I think this is very common uh, in, 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 in biology. So it's very often that you, people will name uh, samples with things that are, they think that will be easy to remember when they, they perform the experiment, but this might not be the case in the future. So everything that is not systematic, it's, I think it's doomed to fail. So I think, I think it's better to say what's good. So I think what's good is something that is systematic. It doesn't have to be anything very sophisticated. Something, if thinking about a naming scheme, for instance, if something like, like sample 0001, that's not so that, I mean, auto-incremental sample ID. Something, and important features are, first one would be that every sample ID is unique. So by having an auto-incremental sample ID scheme makes it unique. Also, having a, a specific length is also important because and then you can you know that you expect the same, the same length for all the, the sample IDs and also a fixed pattern, no? so that you know that, for instance, if you are the analyst in the team, you know that uh, they have like they should have the specific length and they should have a structure in which you first have sample and then you have four digits that you expect them to be auto-incremental. I think it's also like very important. And I would like to highlight the aspect of like why I say 0001. This matches with the fact that in order to keep a, a fixed length for all your samples, so for instance, imagine that you decided to write, okay, I have my first sample, I will name it sample one. But then you run more samples, so when you reach sample 10, then your sample ID is no longer the same uh, sample length, and this can extrapolate to sample 100 or sample 1000. So I think it's important again to sit down and say, okay, so we are this lab, we are generating this number of samples per year, or within the project we will generate maximum 10,000 samples, so then you are good with a, with a different sample scheme. Something on another scheme that we tried, I think it was uh, very cool, was so because we were systematically collecting the metadata, uh, we defined a set of fields that uh, would uh, identify a sample uniquely. So that if you take, let's say, 10 fields, if you take for a given sample, the value of those 10 fields, there will be no two samples having the, the, the exactly the same values. So when we define these fields, 
what we did is that we have a script that digests the, the, the values of the, those fields and will generate a hash. And this hash will be considered as a sample ID. So that in a very automatic way, you are gener generating unique sample IDs. And I think that this can be very uh, useful for large scale projects. So let's say you receive a batch of 100 samples and you don't want to to generate uh, sample IDs for all of them, so you can just generate the sample IDs with this approach. Mm -hmm. So in your paper, you give this example of a sample name, which is B1913E6C1 and so on. And so is this a hash of the identifying fields? It is a hash. It is a hash. So this is what generating as part of a set of many other samples. And, and, and one, one thing I didn't comment on important of this uh, sample ID uh, scheme is that uh, this hash, it has two parts. Yeah. So each, each part is the hash of, of different fields. So in the first hash is what makes each sample a biological replicate. And the second hash, it's, it considers the technical fields. And this is important because if you have biological, so technical replicates of the same biological replicate, so they will share the first half. So it's a, it's mm -hmm. a, it's an easy way to, despite having an ugly sample ID for many researchers, but they will, it will be relatively easy for them to identify two things. Samples that are, that come from the same biological replicate because they will share the first part. And on the other side, uh, samples that come from the same as sequencing batch because they will share the, the the second half. And I think that you can play around with these aspects. So other people may consider like making that the first part of the, of the sample ID indicate, provides information about the project name or the researchers involved in that project. But it circulates around the fact of using the metadata in order to systematically generate unique sample IDs. Interesting. I think uh, one downside of both using uh, Google Forms, as we discussed earlier, and using metadata fields to generate sample IDs is, uh, I don't know if, if it's a common thing that happens frequently or not. At least in, in my own projects, it, it often happens so that I come up with new variables, new dimensions, you know, in the middle of the experiment. So, uh, once I have uh, some number of data points, I decide, oh, like, here's another dimension that uh, I want to vary. And suddenly, the set of fields that you thought before were um, uniquely identifying a sample, they no longer do because you suddenly have this other dimension. And the same about the Google Sheets, uh, because once you add a new uh, field, you need to go back to the entries you have and you have to fill in the previous you know v value of this additional dimension and so is is this something that uh, happens at all in your experience yeah it, it, it has happened so i think it is not that much a problem in terms of uh these approaches which is described to the to find the sample ids because I think that if you really think well in the beginning about fields that will make your so the the the, the obvious, in other words the, the 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 fields that will make your sample unique I think are it's easy to be that they are very obvious in the beginning of the process of the project so 
we haven't encountered the issue of saying, oh, now we have two samples that we cannot really provide, make them like unique sample IDs because they are essentially the same except for a third variable that we had not considered. This is not very common. But I totally agree with that maybe with for other variables that are not involved in the generation of the sample ID, but that, however, are relevant in the analysis, that you may need to add them later on so that you will end up having that a situation in which, like, previous for previous samples, you had not collected these samples. I totally agree with you, with you that's, uh, that's an issue, and that, that's why I, I, I wanted to highlight that in order to define how you're going to be collecting metadata, it's very important that you try to foresee in the beginning which which fields might be relevant not only now, but also in six months' time or in two years' time when the process is already like going on. But on the other side, I also think that this is not a problem specific of, of, of Google Spreadsheets or Google Form. It's, it's a problem of any metadata or data collecting system in which uh, a new variable might, might arise in the future. So, I mean, the, in terms of the form, it's not complicated because then you can just add a new field and then start collecting the metadata for the new sample. It's true that you will have uh, empty fields for other samples, but I cannot think of any any product or any approach by which you would be safe from this situation. Yeah, so I have an idea that uh, I'd like to share with you. And actually, when I was reading your paper, that's what I thought you were proposing. Uh, so I, I didn't realize that you were proposing to build this uh, long hexadecimal uh, strings as hashes of your metadata fields. But I thought uh, they were just random. And uh, why, why not uh, generate them as random long hexadecimal strings that are guaranteed to be unique and one advantage of these random strings as opposed maybe not compared to hashes because hashes are also globally unique uh, or probably globally unique anyway um, but for example compared to sample 0001 is that they are globally unique so I was working on a project where I was analyzing some uh, publicly available data from GenBank. And uh, on GenBank, they were were labeled like sample one, sample two, sample three, and so on. And I had another uh, file with metadata where they also had sample one, sample, or or maybe it was not sample one, but it was one, one, two, three. And I was wondering, are are these one, two, three the same as sample ones? Or are these different uh, naming schemes? Or are these different sample numberings? And so because these long hexadecimal strings are uh, very redundant, right? There is a huge space of the strings as opposed to very few number of small numbers, if you see what I mean. Um, and if you see the identical long random hexadecimal string in two places, you can be reasonably sure that it's really referring to the same uh, sample. So there is no, absolutely no room for confusion. I, I totally agree with you. And, and to be honest, it's something that if I had to go back, uh, I realized afterwards. So it, it's something that I would, uh, I would do right now. So, because I, I realized about it, because one of the sequencing centers that we work with 
it's essentially what they do. So the sample ID is essentially a random number. So that as long as you the sample ID is linked to the metadata, I think it's probably the best option. So because you you don't need to establish any system of fashing your metadata. Because here the goal, I mean, what just I just described that the first how being part of the biological replicate and the second one being part of the technical replicate, it's not really that important. Because what you really want is that your sample ID is unique. So if, if eventually you want to know if two samples are biological replicates with respect to each other, so you just need to go to the metadata. So you, the, 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 the main function of your, of your sample ID is to, to, to trace your samples on the associated files. So I totally agree with you that here, essentially, a random, a random number just could do the job and probably like better than any or, or in an easier way as compared to the other options that we described, namely the, the auto-incremental or the, or the hashed sample IDs. Yeah, the only problem is generation, right? Because I don't think Google Sheets has a function to, to generate a random string. Uh, I also thought about this one thing that you could do is that uh, in addition to the fields that you described for your forms, there's another column which is like a timestamp, which is also unique. So in a way, you could hash this or or just combine the, the digits of the timestamp into a unique ID because it's it, it goes to the seconds. So I don't think that anybody can fill in. I mean, okay, it's true that imagine that we, you have a situation in which there are hundreds of users submitting samples. Then it's and then it, it, it could it, it would be possible that you have two times which are exactly the same. But I think it's also very unlikely, especially in the situation in which we work. And in that case, you could have some some script checking for it and, and yielding a, a warning if that happens. But honestly, I think it's very unlikely. So another thing that you discuss in the paper are uh, Jupyter notebooks and uh, Docker containers. So how do you how do you combine them in your work, and what roles? do they play? So I, I would like to, to separate the two of them because uh, Docker containers, uh, so it's something that uh, it, uh, it was more the expertise of, of Guillaume Fillion, which is uh, the, the senior author in this paper and uh, he greatly contributed to this work. So it's, he's more experienced about it. So I, I see the benefits and I'm really looking forward to, to, to use it in, in, in my projects in the future. But to be honest with with you, I have not used it that much, so I cannot comment on how I, I use it in, in my in my real life. So with Jupyter notebooks, uh, I don't know if the listeners are fam the listeners are familiar with it. It's essentially it takes the the format of a website if you want, so in which you can combine uh, you can combine code. It can be essentially I use it for Jupyter code, but I know that it also works for Julia and R. It's just that you need to change the kernel, so which is the underlying engine performing the analysis. So essentially, you can combine code uh, with raw text and also with markdown. So and I think this is very and, and also not only that you can combine because it has a very particular structure in which you have cells. So when you open a Jupyter notebook, you have the unit is a cell. In each cell, you can, as I said, put code. Uh, Markdown test or just raw text, 
And I think it is very important because then when you're performing the analysis, you can split it into the different cells so that maybe you will have a, in, in one cell, you will load your metadata uh, in another cell, you will, uh, you will, uh, so that then you can execute and see the result of it. So you can say you have defined a function in which you are loading your metadata and print the first entries so that you can perform it and you see that it works so that then you, you do the next step and let's say you load your data and in the third cell you combine both and you generate one plot which is embedded in the Jupyter notebook. So it's a very modular way of performing your analysis which I think it's very useful when you are prototyping on you or when you are performing analysis that yet don't have a special workflow. And because you can uh, also combine cel uh, cells in which you can just write a markdown, it's very useful in order to comment your analysis. So I think this is a benefit because as much as we agree that commenting your code is relevant, uh, sometimes it's a little bit, uh, it's little user friendly when you can just use hash to comment your code. Uh, so that here it's very com com convenient that you can just write an introduction. If it happens that you are performing an analysis following the instructions of a given paper, you can embed the, the citation or the link to that paper. So you can also embed images of a cartoon of the analysis that you are performing. So it's, it's, a pay, it's essentially like a notebook that you could write your analysis, but electronic so that you can combine code, plots, comments and, and this is the way I, I use it especially for for the downstream analysis things that are not uh, very standardized it's interesting that you, you compare the uh, notebook comments to the code comments and in, indeed the notebook comments are not restricted to the short phrases after the uh, hash mark uh, I ju just wanted to say that this tradition really goes back to uh, Donald Knuth this was used to be called uh, literate programming and uh, Knuth wrote a lot of his programs in this style where uh, as opposed to code interspersed with bits of comments, it's mostly comments and actual like text interspersed with uh, bits of code. And Jupyter of course takes this to a new level where you cannot just look at the code but uh, also see the results uh, of the code. But I, I wasn't sure if you recommend using a Jupyter Notebook as a means to communicate with uh, other scientists or also as something where you develop and, and run your analyses? Both ways. So in first place, for me, the notebook is a, like a very useful way to, when I'm, I'm still developing or thinking the analysis, it's, it's a way to organize the steps that I follow. No? So for instance, I, as I said, I'm loading the metadata. Here I'm performing this sanity check to see that the quality, it, and so all this, this initial explorative analysis. And later on, I have this goal of performing this statistical inference analysis. I will eventually perform it and then make a plot. So it, it's a way for me to structure the analysis and then once the analysis is relatively finished or I want to share it with the researchers, I can just send them the link or, or share with them the notebooks. Or, or even better, if you're not so interested in the notebook itself, itself so that they can reproduce the analysis, you can also convert to an HTML or a PDF 
so that the researchers can have it and extract the, the, the plots from there and, and even use it for, the, for, for communicating the results to the community or to write the paper, etc. So it, it works both sides. But what if we, uh, for your analysis, you need to run some external programs? For example, you need to align your reads right to the reference genome. Um, do you call these uh, aligners from your Jupyter notebook, or is the Jupyter notebook is the very last stage of your analysis after all the command line programs have been run? Yes. So it, it's the it's the very last. You're right. So it's the last. So the the code that I write in my notebooks is for performing like the, the very last part of the analysis. That's because so far I have not been able to launch a job with Jupyter Notebook from the computing cluster. So I, I always need to execute the Jupyter Notebook from my laptop, so which has limited, uh, or my computer, which has limited computing power as compared to, to the cluster of my institution. But I know that also you can you can call so imagine that you want you need to execute a mapper i know that you can still do it from one of if you write the 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 right code in one of the cells given that you use the proper syntax you can execute it in the cluster and even if you don't do so i also you can do it as a as a documentation saying okay I, normally what i do is in the beginning of of the report or the notebook i say other uh, unless the state otherwise so this is the path that I will be referring to, which is my home directory in the cluster. So for instance, if I write, okay, now I'm gonna execute this script, even if I later on, I on the other, I, I parallelly uh, execute the script in the cluster, at least the, the, the reader has the, the, the specific command I use to run that mapping step. I don't know if that's clear. Yeah, but in your Jupyter uh, notebook, then you refer to various files, right? Data files that have been produced by other programs, and uh, I, I'm just afraid that this makes uh, this workflow not entirely reproducible because there is no explicit, explicitly defined dependencies on these other files. So if you send your notebook to someone else, they will run it and then maybe a third of all cells will fail because uh, there is no uh, file in their directory or something like that. Yes, well, that, that's correct. So so the Jupyter notebook so as, well, assumes that you are working in uh, in the cluster that we, we, we hold the data. I, I wasn't talking about a cluster. I was talking just about like you're running Jupyter on your machine, then you send the notebook to someone else, and they try to run it on their machine, and it doesn't work. I suppose if if you can run it on a centralized cluster, that might address those problems. But that's why why in the beginning I defined that it's not that in every cell I define the path. So in the beginning I defined the, like the the base path, so that all all the analysis are relative to that path. So I guess I do this on purpose so that, for instance, if you in a situation like the one that you just described, so if, if I send you the Jupyter notebook and, and, and we are both part of the same team, so we the data is stored in the same place, by just changing that path, the, the analysis will be reproducible. So when you say the data is stored in the same place, what do you mean? Like a, like a network file system or you just have your local file systems organized in the same way? How does it work? 
Yeah, so in this team I, I described of 20 to 30 people, we all have access to the same cluster where we sh there's a shared file system. If I'm accessing data, let's say, and, and, I, and I, data is in that path, so it will also be in, the, in that same place, not only for me, for but other person, other person in that in the same team. So that makes it reproducible within your team, but not if, for example, you have to send this notebook to to a reviewer, right, or a collaborator outside outside of your institution. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, but again, I think it's because all 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 these uh, practices, are, or at least the, the the version of the practices that we use were defined in the in the time or in the in the in the context of, of the project. So assuming that like very often very often we will be working or interacting with people who all have access to the same data or the data are in the same place. I agree with you that if you need to send that data to the reviewer then you would need to in a way and probably it's where here's where the dockers comes into 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 play is that you should containerize not only your code but maybe the, the so the Jupyter notebook but also the data so that you containerize it send it to the reviewer so that he or she will be able to replicate the data or rerun the Jupyter notebook and I think it's one of the the, the virtues of, of of containers. All right, we've been chatting for a while now. Before we end this podcast, if our listeners want to get started with this, you know, what will be the one thing with the highest return on investment? What would be one lesson that they would get the most of? I think that uh, metadata collection is key. Definitely, metadata collection is is key, and I think I would. I, I know that you asked me one. That's why I'm saying metadata. But I think that metadata coupled with uh, Unique sample IDs, which and, and together with a structured organization of your data, this is like really the the base of of a good uh, efficient management and analysis. I think that other aspects that we cover, like uh, integrating the metadata with analysis, super useful. But I also understand that it it's not it might not be. It's more a higher level. You also re require like computational people to do so. Uh, all the things that we say that like automating the analysis so that it scales well with uh, with a high number of samples, uh, making it modular. These are things that a higher level, like you, higher level, and you definitely need uh, experienced people. And and the same works uh, for or the same applies for web applications in which you really have to have. A need for those web applications that not only this, but you need a person to implement those web applications. But things like collecting the metadata, unique sample IDs, and a uh, uh, structure organization of the data, I think this should be uh, like the best recommendation and something that really mandatory for all teams, even if they are small, dealing with um, high throughput data. Cool. Well, Javier, uh, it was very interesting to talk to you, and I, I hope this uh, conversation will be helpful for our listeners. Uh, thank you for coming in the podcast. Okay, thank you very much.